Welcome to the Profitable Farmer Podcast, where it's all about increasing the profitability of your farm by working smarter, not harder. Welcome once again to Profitable Farmer. I hope the season's playing out favourably for you. Um, We're getting some rain and I have heard rumours of hail events. Um, And so Mother Nature has a wonderful way of sometimes promising so much and then um, not always delivering. But, you know, I hope where you are that in spite of all that's playing out, a wet finish, a dry finish, um, hail, frost, whatever, that um, the prospects are still looking favourable for you. In this podcast, I'm delighted to introduce someone who we asked to speak to our Platinum Mastermind members on a webinar recently around the topic of machinery financing in particular, but also more broadly, getting your lending format right and in and getting your um, discussion and your relationship with your bank strong. Um, but I'm probably... Probably fair to say that Jeff McDonald has a huge amount to offer in that space, but so much more to offer. And um, we'll introduce Jeff shortly, but what I'm wanting to explore with Jeff today is this really important theme of collaborative farming. Um, Jeff's got a wonderful history in and around making successful collaborative farming Um, projects work famously. And again, I hope that this podcast opens your mind a little bit perhaps to um, different ways in which to consider expanding your family farm um, and your interest in agriculture. So, Jeff, welcome to Profitable Farmer. Thanks very much, Jeremy. It's great having you on board. And yeah, thank you very much for, I guess, all the insights that you shared within our our community recently. No problem at all. It's been fun. So, um, Jeff, you're at Berry. How's the season playing out for those around you at the moment? Um, Unfortunately, I I don't know if we'd rate as the worst in the country, but um, we have had a, a very poor. Uh, let's just call it below average uh, year in the dryland farming. Our our average rainfall around Loxton, what we call the Northern Mallee here in South Australia, is um, 250 mil, and uh, and we're I think before the last couple of weeks of storms, we uh, got ourselves to 120 mil, so uh, we're limping along. Um, we did get a little bit of a cool finish, so there is there are crops out there. Um, and you know the guys have done well to grow what they've grown, um, and of course we have a higher price than what we're budgeting on. So um, yeah, some of them will get through break even, some of them will take a bit of a hit. But of course, just to as usually happens, um, every farmer tells me a good year gets better and a and a poor year gets worse as the year goes on. So we had a smashing power storm on Saturday that's done a lot of damage, mainly. The one on Saturday was mainly uh, almonds and wine grapes and irrigation gear. But the week before that, we had another big one go through south of Oxton and there's some paddocks there that have been completely wiped out as well. So uh, Mother Nature's, uh, yeah, testing us this year. Yeah, well, I'm feeling for, for you and for all those, as I say, that, that are getting that sort of an end to the season. Hmm. Jeff, um, while we're on our current reality, um, what do you make of land prices and what's played out in the last 12 months? And, and just as an opening comment, um, 
how do you predict land valuations might progress in years to come? Um, very, very uh, poignant question there, Jeremy, because I have these discussions with banks nearly weekly. Um, and this is my view, of course. Um, I don't believe people talk about all-time high livestock prices. I uh, consider what we've been seeing in the last few months as our new norm. Um, we talk about, you know, wheat prices at uh, just call it 380 at the moment, which you would call, you know, top 10, top 5% of all time. I actually say 300 is our new base. And that's not just because it sounds good and I want to sell loans to banks. Um, I look at it as a paradigm shift over the last couple of years. You know, just about everywhere you go, land's probably twice as expensive as it was just three years ago, um, driven by a lot of reasons, outside investment, um, low interest rates, um, and affordability with commodity prices. And, of course, now we've also now seen higher FERP prices and um, you know, input costs. So if you actually look at that whole box together, we've got higher returns, we've got higher input costs, therefore the land's actually still affordable at double the price from three years ago at current interest rates. So if you actually take a paradigm shift and say, if we consider what I just said, livestock at normal prices, if we just said everything at the moment is normal and we extrapolated that out, most pretty well most farmers anywhere can show a profit on those numbers. My problem is that I deal with bankers and some of their credit guys come out and say, oh, yeah, but what if all the income goes south and inputs go further north and rates go up and everything else? But I also add in there just carefully that, Whilst they're, I think there needs to be a little increment in rates because they're a little bit too low and I think they got a bit too low in the first place, um, our economy needs to, you know, take off and the only way the economy is going to uh, boom is through GDP rather than just employment and therefore I can't see us, you know, being more than percent, one and a half percent higher than what we are now over the next five years. So I don't fear interest rate rises at all. I don't think that'll be an effect. So back to land prices, I think we're probably... 70 to 80% towards the top of the spike that we might be getting to. And then history might show that once we get there, it'll flatten out for another five or 10 years. And, uh, and then we have another spike again. It's really refreshing, actually, to hear you say that. And I think, yeah, our banks might have one perspective and they need to have that. But yep. from, a, from a farm owner decision-making process about our current landscape, it is really refreshing to hear you make that comment. And, and I think, you know, for many of us, there is a mindset shift to allow current prices, be it land or commodity prices, be okay, and to reset our, our forward thinking from there. I guess yeah. your response there, Jeff, and I might just introduce you a bit more if I can, but it does set up nicely for this construct and this conversation around collaborative farming because I think with higher land prices, now more than ever, we've got to think laterally around how it is that as family farmers, we achieve, achieve expansion. And so just to introduce Jeff, um, Jeff heads up the uh, Riverland Lending Services business, which is a team of, I think, 15 um, now that offers finance broking services to farming businesses across South Australia, Victoria, New South Wales, Jeff and beyond. Right, wide. Yep, Queensland. And in addition to that, Jeff has a really significant skill set in consulting and facilitation and, and farm business strategy and has offered really compelling, bespoke and really insightful support to many of our 
Platinum Mastermind members. And it's, it's through those connections with some of our um, members of Farm Owners Academy that we have come to know Jeff and really respect what he and his team are doing, certainly in the lending space, but but probably more importantly in the in the consulting and facilitation and and farm family business support space. So Jeff, I hope that does you justice. Yeah, thank you, Jeremy. Um, I think probably just one key message there is I was brought up in primary production, lived it. Um, I went into finance. Um, I currently have um, equity ownership of a farm, a dryland farm, a vineyard, an almond orchard, uh, water, um, different aspects there through different areas. So I'm, I'm probably a, uh, I'm in ag first with a finance and a business perspective on it. I'm not actually a financier that looks at ag and judges ag. I'm, I'm, I'm in ag. And that's, that's sometimes is a fair difference when I'm dealing with banks and some others. Thanks, Jeff. So, Coming to this conversation about collaborative farming, would you mind just defining what that is for you, perhaps? Um, and let's launch straight in, Jeff, perhaps to the Bulabara case study, because I know that over the years, and it's probably been more than 10 years now, you've pioneered um, what that project has achieved. And it is a great example of what collaborative farming can look like. Would you mind just giving us a bit of context there? Sure. Um, the, the one thing about ag and should I say family farming in particular, that was an aspect that used to hit me in the face, you know, 10 to 15 years ago, was everyone was dealing with what they had. And of course, I would deal with other businesses where if they, if they got a contract to transport, you know, a product that took five trucks and, you know, B-double trailers, they'd go out and finance those trucks and trailers against the contract. So they could, uh, within their ability to finance or anything else, they'd just go and set their business up as they, as they would. But I'd be talking to a farmer who's cropping a certain amount of acres and I'd ask them about the technology in their machinery, their spray plant or something like that as to whether it's keeping up and doing a good job. And they said, yeah, but I've only got 2,000 acres and that's so all I can afford is a 10-year-old machine, so I'm always going to be behind the eight ball. And, and that would frustrate me because it was a restriction. But, of course, I, I looked at it and said, well, but that's a restriction on your thinking, you know, and without being judgmental, of course, and say, you know, if you had a spray plant that you could afford that was only a couple of years old, had all the technology you wanted, did a fantastic job, but you needed to put it over 5,000 acres, well, go and make inquiries about leasing or share farming to change the scale of your operation. And so, of course, I'm looking at it as a business operation, not as a family farm, as in what's owned. And, oh, I, all sorts of ding-dong arguments along the way about that. How dare I suggest things like that, as you can imagine. So probably translating from that, uh, my old friend John Gladigo had just completed a Nuffield Scholarship in about 2007, eight, somewhere around then. And, uh, and he was doing his tour of Australia, talking about it and a few other things. Um, and I had a bit of time on my hands, so I poked him a little bit and suggested that if he just kept talking about it and didn't do it, he uh, you know, had no credibility, and I didn't realise he admits now that I, I think I poked a button there. So, And he said, well, the job is you're going to be chairman and help construct it if we're going to do it. So so the, the short story is uh, John's family, the Gladigo family, who were third generation, um, and the Schaefer family. Uh, so John was at Alawuna, which is about 35 k's from Loxton, uh, the Schaefers, Robin Schaefer was at Loxton and he was third, maybe even fourth generation. Um, friends as well. Um, 
they both owned, excuse me for talking acres, I'm just too used to it, but they both owned about 5,000 acres and each of them did a little bit of share farming, et cetera, as well. So we sat down and we actually modelled, and John did a lot of this early work, we actually modelled what the most efficient operation would be based around machinery to start with and with a preference for 40-foot fronts and 40-foot seating bars and managing traffic control, um, we worked out that one front, one seating bar would do about 10,000 acres in the Northern Mallee comfortably in most years. Obviously, in a big year, it would take some time and push through it. In a light year, we'd get it done pretty quick. So that was about you know, rough numbers, of course, with technology and machinery at the time. Um, but, of course, one... 120 foot boom spray park to do 20,000 acres in a in a you know easily in the northern Mallee. So suddenly we're talking about what we call cell sizes, and we're building and saying, well, 10,000 acres, 20,000 acres, two headers, two um, seeding bars, but only one boom spray. So we worked out the efficiencies, and they effectively with the leasing and share farming arrangements, they had about 15,000 acres under control. So 2009, we went in about 18,000 acres. 2010 went in a bit over 20,000 acres with the goal to be 20,000 acres with that machinery structure. So that's what we did. We formed a business, um, standalone operation business called Bullabara, which uh, was for um, any accountants or, or technical people, it's, it's basically a company uh, with a unit trust. Um, and that was there to do the trading. It was there to uh, put the crop in. It was there to take it off. It was there to uh, buy the machinery finance machinery on structures that we've talked about before um, and make them operating expenses. And that was it. That was the job of Bolivar. It was just to conduct the business of 20,000 acres. So by nature, and these are where the, what I call the principles, um, it broke the, farming, the family farming operation that John and Robin individually were used to over many, many years. It broke it into three key components. Everyone got paid a wage for what they did because it was a business. So that meant we had to define job descriptions. Um, John took the role of being business manager. So he looked after, uh, over, oversaw all the admin and the finance and the business decisions around it. Robin was the farm manager and basically did all the cropping programs and measured gross margins and made agronomic decisions. So they had their key roles in there and then build the staff structures around that. Um, so, and they paid a wage accordingly. And as, as John did, his job was really only part-time. He wanted a bit of time free. And then he would turn up as a casual for seeding and harvest and Robin would tell him where to go and what shift he was on and what to do because that was his role when he did that. And they were paid, and, and this is where the principles come in that have applied across every collaborative and, and a lot of family farms as well. They were paid a wage based on their job. And, it, and there's so many factors to this that I consider important that I wanted to get the message through. Firstly, like anyone else, like all of us, we get paid a wage and that puts food on the table and pays the mortgage of the house or whatever puts the kids through school. Our personal expenses, our personal uh, living should be funded out of our wages. It's just to separate that separately. And, of course, a lot of partnerships with mums and dads, their overdraft covers their living expenses on a year-by-year -year basis and there's no set salaries or anything else. All okay, except as long as it's all available and still there every year and doesn't get tight. When you have a set wage, you can set your lifestyle and your budget, your personal budget, just like any other employee. It also um, brings advantages where, at the end of the day, the on costs that go with it are work cover and, and super. Well, they're a personal benefit to the owners anyway, so it's not like it's a cost at all. Um, and 
things that happen, I shouldn't say this, but you know, when stimulus comes in, if you've got a wage, proper wage structure, all the, the system of the tax office and 90% of businesses out there pay wages. So um, that's that was a core structure. And then personal decisions were able to be made by them. If they saved up some money or had some personal and they wanted a holiday, they'd do it, they'd take leave. And, and things that a lot of owner-operators don't want to apply to their business, I understand that, but it does set, um, it does set some principles around that make it easier to frame your life around. And I think this is quite important for kids as well coming through in the family farm, you know, to allow them to work inside a budget and establish a worth for what they're worth on the farm. There's another part of this too, is that one of the collaboratives um, I worked with, unfortunately, had a sudden death of one of the employees um, along the way. At the end of the day, without it sounding callous or anything, his job was paid at commercial wages. He was getting whatever it was at the time, call it $75,000, $80,000 a year to do an important job on that property. He suddenly stopped. That, that business had the ability to go and hire someone to replace him and didn't miss a beat. And the protection of that farm, whereas, you know, that, that separation of the employment. And, and separate to that, his widow was able to maintain the property ownership in a different format. Thank you, so my question, Jeff, is what did it take for those two families to come together um, and then so back at the outset and now, years later, what does it mean for succession perhaps for that next generation of both of those families relative to that project? The And uh, this is my perception, John and Robin who answer for themselves. Um, I've found that a lot of farmers actually like, even when it's just a joint venture on the side, a property ownership board, a lot of families actually like to share. The, um, as long as it's structured and managed well, they, they don't mind sharing either risk or the highs and lows with other people. And so I think there was an element of that. There was certainly between the two of them knowing each other well, they're quite yin and yang. <laughs> they, um, they, you know, John's skills and Robin's skills lie in different areas and they respect each other's skills. So they both... You know, the old saying, the two of them added nearly three people's worth of worth when they came into the same business. Um, the, the succession is the obvious one um, where there is a structure there where there's jobs in Bullaburra, casual and, you know, and, and full time. And there's been opportunities for any of their children to come in in any of those roles along the way um, as employees. And, and therefore, you don't have to mix up property land ownership or even trading ownership in with employees they can actually work so robin's children over the years have done a number of harvests and seeding um and you know they've all had their own decisions back into ag in a structured environment so moving forward that wage component in particular has been strong for it but just to add into that and separate the other two parts because they're pretty simple after that and that is land ownership this is how simple it gets in bolivarra John and his family owned some property. Robin and his family owned some property. There was already some lease property and there was other lease property they acquired. So at the end of the day, the property ownership is really nothing to do with Bullaburra. All of it's leased. So John and Robin individually, they're leasing their farm, just like they would to someone else or share farming it or whatever arrangement they're comfortable with on risk. They're actually doing that just like they would to the outside parties, except they're doing it to Bullaburra. So... There's, you know, we see it a lot with water in the Riverland now where the value of water's gone up, but there's a lot of people that are selling their properties or even demolishing, you know, pushing out their plantings and holding onto their water and leasing it. So there, um, and there's there's a lot of, 
you know, farmers out there that still own land and lease it or even the old city farmer that buys the land and leases it out. So they hold those hats. So really they're making investment decisions on that asset. They're looking at it, will I get capital gain? What return am I getting on the way through? Just like buying a share or a residential investment property. So that separates that and that's where the asset ownership succession takes place. So if John passes his land down to his kids in time or Robin does the same, doesn't matter. It's under lease to Boulevard. And there are other property owners out there that lease land to Bulabara and they might drop away and others come in. It's just a very simple commercial arrangement. But what it does, and this is where we get to the third part, Jeremy, when you're paying, if you were a mum and dad operation going on nicely, not paying wages, not paying lease payments to yourself, and everything gets to the bottom line and then you make sure you cover the bills and put food on the table, it looks a lot better at the bottom line. When you go and put in wages, to cover the cost of living commercially and you go and put in commercial lease payments, it puts pressure on that bottom line. And this is some of the discussions that I've found hard with some people. It's obviously Bullabar accepted it and so did a lot of others. That's a good thing because you actually know what your business is doing then. That is a clarity that if a business operation can't make money after paying commercial wages and commercial lease payments, well, it shouldn't be there. It's like a business like mine, RLS, we lease our building we live in, I've got to pay wages to all the staff, and then I've got to make money. And if I don't, I won't go open the doors. My wife won't put a mortgage on a house if I'm not making money. Well, why shouldn't that be the same in farming? Of course, everyone gets scared to see those numbers for the first time when there's a commercial aspect. But notwithstanding, for John and Robin, they're getting paid a wage, they're getting paid their lease payments, and the lease payments generate a service debt and build equity and provide for their children. Set those two aside. They actually don't need for any more then. There's no essential need to make money, but the driver in the business is then to make money. So then we start looking at how we can be as efficient as we can on the operations to make money in Bulabara after those two elements take care of. And that's the final part is what is the risk we're taking to put a crop in each year, run the machinery, you know, costs and everything that go with it, and what we get back from it. And that's the a, a, a full collaborative structure in a nutshell for two families coming together and how we manage it for what I call to make the best business decisions I can. So looking back now, how much more efficient, productive, um, effective are each of those individual farms than they were when they were operated purely as family farms, in your opinion, as chairman to that project? I consider they're very, they're, they're very, they're much more profitable. And, and we've, one of our irrigation businesses, we turned around and we actually did an ad back. We added back, so if we took it back to a few years earlier when mum and dad ran it, and we actually added back the wages to themselves and the on costs, we added back the lease payments themselves, in their case, water as well. We added them all back and put it at the bottom line. It blew us all away. But, we don't see it like that now because that's expected. You know, if you've got water, you get to lease it. You've got land, you get to lease it. So that's expected and there's an expectation we make profit. So it's a different paradigm again where we're actually operating to say this business has to make profit. It doesn't matter who we lease the water, the land, anything from. So, so yes, it's created efficiency. Some of the decisions along the way as well, and if you don't mind, I've got a couple of stories just to embarrass John and Robin if they ever listen to this. <laughs> um, John rocked up once and decided he was getting a new Colorado and he put it on the table at the meeting and 
And of course, I said, well, what do you get a new car for? And he said, because I'm a farmer and I got a car. And I said, no, you're a business manager and you don't need to drive anywhere for your job. If you want a car, go buy it yourself. And But hang on, why don't I get a car? Robin gets a car and others get a car. And I said, because it's job related. And so there's an aspect of business that applies. His job didn't deserve a car, so he didn't get it. And he didn't get it either. I dug my heels in and so he went off and got it himself and, and, uh, and fully accepts it and the reason why. It wasn't with his job. The other one was Robin and, and Andrew Bealey, who's the two I see there. They came in with a proposal when the weed-seeking equipment was first new. And they already had this very expensive 120-foot boom spray they were running out over 20,000 acres at a cost. And uh, they lobbed in with a with the weed-seeker proposal and basically said, you know, oh, look at all the chemical we'll save. This is worth it. And I threw back at them a heap of mass around it, saying, on, you're attracted to pull it. It's not self-propelled. You've got to drive it to drive it. You've got the, all the costs of that, and you've got to run around, and you're still running the other machine around. You've just added, it doesn't matter how much chemical it's saved, you just added a whole layer of cost onto the spraying operation of this business, and it's unaffordable. And I asked them to prove it was affordable. To their credit, they went out with their tar between the legs. They came back with a new proposal a month later, and it all made sense because the first thing we did was we took the pressure. We worked out the hours we were going to put on the self-propelled, and we worked out we didn't need to change it over every two or three years and burn up a heap of depreciation in that. We could suddenly back off on the usage of it and stretch that out and lower down the cost of it. And that covered, and, and all of a sudden the two of them as a package worked. So, again, it just gets down to it sharpened up the decision-making process that they had to actually make sense. They couldn't just be get the latest toy. It couldn't just be this is what I feel. Actually, are a robust decision-making. Now, again, to Robin and John's credit, they've put themselves in front of not just me, but themselves, each other as well, and had to make themselves accountable to every decision. And I must admit, I find that hard, and I reckon most people out there would when they've been able to do what they want, when they want, not have to be accountable to anyone on it. To turn around and choose to do that, it's a credit to them because not everyone wants to do that. Jeff, what is it that you think would keep so many family farms from considering this you know it it is still a very rare and unique model that multiple families would come together to share land assets share resources and operate together at risk of values not aligning so many layers of things that could go wrong what keeps families from considering a collaboration rather than going it alone as so many do um, I'll start with some stats. This discussion will probably only attract the attention of 5% of the farming community for a start because the other 95% there is no need or desire. And the 5% generally have a need. Sometimes someone getting a bit older with no succession would potentially rather partner with someone a bit younger than just go through the traditional phase of get to a point where you start share farming and then lease and then sell. Um, so there's an attraction to continue. And I, I know Sam Marwood's done some good work in that area as well with cultivated farms. Um, there's other, other aspects of this where some people just thrive on working with others. Sometimes there's drivers in behind it as well, like it could be health issues. And we've had cases where someone comes in and they're an owner and a risk taker, but they're not an employee. So again, you don't have to be any of these. You don't have to even be a landowner. You, know, you can invest in the in the business and the machinery and the risk of it and get a return. You don't have to own land, you don't have to be an employee, so you can play any role you like. So when we get down to that 5% that show interest in it, it's probably only 5% of them that are ever suited or geared towards it. So it's a, such a small 
very small majority that all the ducks have to line up to get two families together, like John Robin, to actually do a full-scale collaboration. What tends to happen is we had a slight variant of that for most of the ones we do. So they could be um, their extended families that are doing their own thing. We actually bring the family back in together. Or it's actually a succession where we separate all the land for the family members but keep the operation together. So there's so many variations that can happen around it. But the irony of this is when you actually think of any farmer out there that does a bit of share farming and a bit of leasing and so on and so on, they're in a way being collaborative with the landowners. But it's just seen as single things all the time. And, and, and it also tends to come from a reactionary opportunity thing. That's the difference here with collaborative farming is, you know, the neighbour puts up 3,000 acres and said, you're interested? Yes, absolutely, we'll take it on. By the way, Jeff, can we have a new header, <laughs> you know, a new chapter, whatever, we've got to change it over. And by the way, we need another half a million on the overdraft to be able to put the crop into it. No worries. You know, and if they're in a strong position, that's what you do. Um, but it's reactive to that opportunity on the land, whereas in a collaborative venture, you would start with that business model first, work out the working capital, work out the machinery structure, and then you would aim the land around it. So, yeah, it's a whole shift from what people are doing. So the final answer I'll give you on that is it's not natural behaviour for a human to change voluntarily. You know, change threatens comfort, it threatens safety as a natural thing in the brain. So therefore, there needs to be something in it for people to want to be attracted to it. And we've seen cases where, no succession is one. It might be finance pressure, you know, just, you know, struggling to keep up with technology. You know, might, there's so many parts to it that drive the opportunity to have the discussion and a lot of them still don't get together. So it's not for everyone, but it's actually about the principles in it that a lot of people apply and get, get value out of. So this brings us to, I guess, a comment that I've heard you make before, Jeff, that, you know, the principles that underpin a successful collaborative farm are the same principles that probably make a good family farm function highly effectively. Um, what are some of the governance structures um, that you put in place at Bullaburra that you think are critical, not just for collaborative farms, but for successful family farms as well? Um, putting them in place for Bullaburra is a lot easier than putting them in place for uh, uh, family farms that have done things in a certain way. Um, the, probably the, the uh, I'll talk the corporate bit and then I'll talk the psychology bit, if you don't mind. Um, the corporate bit is pretty simple and I'll use Bullaburra where um, John was a director, Robin was a director and I was a director and we each had a vote. So if we had to make a decision um, and we couldn't agree in general discussion, then we had to bring it to a vote. And my vote was only a casting vote. So obviously if Robin and John disagreed on something, I'd have the casting vote, which is, a, I suppose, a, a power I didn't want because it wasn't, I wasn't an investor in it and it wasn't my risk. I was there to facilitate. We never in 10 years had a vote because as independent chairman, it was my job to get an agreement of a, a compromise if there was a bit of disagreement to actually agree on what was best for Bolivar. Now, when I would have discussions with John and Robin, <clears throat> they were very good. I was able to say, we're sitting here as directors of Bolivar. We're here to make the best decisions for the shareholders of Bolivar. It's actually not about how you feel, Robin or John, or whether you want a car yourself or whatever. That becomes part of a Bolivar decision, but everything is about Bolivar. So we were able to bring everything back to be the operations and the business, because if Bulabara did well, made money, everything else, and everything else becomes secondary to that, and everyone makes their own family decisions outside of it. So that 
that was the corporate structures that are, that applies. Now, I'll just say one thing, which applies to family funds, and, and I'll quote John on this because he said this so many times. There's only three things that you need to deal with in collaborative farming. Emotions, emotions, and emotions. And um, and that's what it's all about, isn't it? Yeah, you know, and and I in 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 my wider work with RLS facilitation work, you know, every single discussion is basically a, a business psychology um, discussion where someone's done it in a way that served them well their entire life, and someone like me comes along and sprouts another idea, not to tell them what to do, just sprouts another idea. The natural behaviour is to, to defend what served you well. So when you've got a son and a father in a family farm, this is where you get down to the, the, the underneath the succession. It's not about the model you put in place. It's about the actions of the people. So when the son says, how about this, Dad? And Dad says, no, this, that's not how it works, son. You know, how do you open up that discussion to sort of say, well, where is the middle ground and what's the world like today with compliance and HR and work health safety and where do we need to be and everything that, you know, a lot of people don't want to hear, but it's real and it's out there. So... People like me come along, collaborative structures look after it by itself. Family farming structures, I go in and just poke the bear and be the bad guy and just tell them what they don't want to hear and then help them step up. It speaks to perhaps what's missing in so many family farms where there is often a lot of emotion. Um, you know, that simple example you gave where there was, you know, father and son having a chat, but because there was a chairman in the room, you got to actually sit there and actually allow that conversation to play out a little more constructively, perhaps a little bit more professionally and look for a resolution rather than, you know, a yes, no. So I completely understand where having that third party improving the quality of the decisions that are made or the quality of the conversation adds value. But through this too, you've also talked about org charts, job descriptions, clearly defined roles, clear remuneration models, separating land ownership from operating employment. Um, would you mind speaking to those? And then what else do you think is critical for our family farms to, to be getting in place if we are to learn from what is best practice in a collaborative sense? Yep, yep. Um, the, the biggest couple of things I'm banging on about at the moment, um, and they're very hot and it's the way the world's changing, and please, I want your audience to forgive me, I'm not suggesting that the farmers are either behind the game or not up, up with what's happening, but there's often any sort of business, unless you actually have to deal with some of these things, it's actually quite interesting how far they've moved when you're right in the in the hot seat of them from where you think they are. Finance has won in the last three years since the Royal Commission that um, banks have now been charged with the responsibility that um, a proposal where someone's got a $10 million farm and they want to borrow a million dollars, if they can't demonstrate they can repay that debt, principal and interest, then it's actually deemed irresponsible by the bank to lend to them. They're not allowed to use their equity. The purpose has to be absolutely clear and the bank have to control the money on the purpose. It can't just be, yeah, set it up and I might spend some later, any of that. So all the, all the expectations from as short as five years ago from farmers out there that I've got the equity and therefore I'm safe bet and you know, everyone seems to talk LVRs, loan to valuation ratios is where they sit and that's important. But now they've got to actually show servicing. So these, these things are changing and people don't realise until they log into the bank. And, of course, then there's changing with finance with 
less bank managers and more central locations and electronic and closing of branches. But then you move over workhouse safety and um, and HR. They're the two big ones at the moment that traditionally farmers have been left alone with. And um, even though you know farmers tend to when they're mum and dad operations they tend to hurt themselves and not others mostly. And you know you can't legislate someone to be, be liable for themselves. So. But as if, you know, and, and I challenge anyone to drive into Viterra and when you meet the requirements to go into a, a, a silo or something like that, you're wearing a hard hat, you're wearing goggles, you're not allowed to leave your vehicle, you've got to stand in one spot if you do, you know, you've got to have your anti-brake system to open the door, you know, and high beers, you name it, and steel cap boots just to drive a truck in there. So that's the standard that's, you know, imparted in ag in certain areas that have had, the corporates have had to follow, yet on farm, you won't see a lot of that. And even with employees out there, you won't see a lot of that. Now, the thing that sprung, you know, again, I don't want to get topical on this, but the whole mandates around COVID um, as, as they're applying throughout Australia now are quite interesting because when I drill down to the core in behind it, it's workhouse safety again, is that if you don't have a mandate policy in a business, then you're actually judged to be providing an unsafe workplace if anyone comes in and unvaccinated. So suddenly we have to tell them that they can't come into work. So then what do you do? Sack them, send them home without pay? What are you doing then under HR? Swap over to HR then and say, well, can they sue you for unfair dismissal? You know, and there's this whole Pandora's box that we're going through, nightmare for all business owners to try and manage because it's not actually about personal choice, this thing. It's actually about law and being sued and all this compliance. So these sorts of things now to actually, like my father knew, well, if he didn't know everything, because <laughs> it was all pretty simple, he knew who to talk to. He had a bank manager around the corner and he had an insurance agent and an agronomist and everyone was there and he covered all his business needs by talking to these people and then making his own decisions. Accountants, and now that a lot of this information is very hard to understand, the, the drivers are now to manage that risk is to go and get these people to sit in and help. And that's where a more formal structure is nearly imperative going forward. And I come back to the banks because they've got the responsibility to make sure they're responsible in lending money and they need to understand that the people have been responsible in running a business. It's not a farm anymore, it's running a business. So these are, again, um, a lot of your audience aren't going to be liking what I'm saying, but it's actually real and happening. And um, and, and farming has been the last one that's had to implement a lot of this along the way, but it is coming. So, Yeah, I mean, it's why we exist at Farm Owners Academy to help farming families create more profitable and more professional outfits that businesses that are bankable and and um, sustainable long term and I think you're right there there are now more pressures than ever for us to get our safety and our compliance and our governance frameworks in place um, and that that's not a bad thing it actually yeah, absolutely helps us all raise the bar um, mm. so coming back to collaborative farming Jeff um, we've talked about Bullaburra but I know um, that you've been involved now with with quite a few across South Australia, Victoria, and into New South Wales. Um, would you mind speaking to Collaborative Farming Australia and what that is, and even sharing a couple of other case studies? Mm. So Collaborative Farming Australia is pretty well John and myself um, driving in behind assisting you know families to get together in full-scale models. As it's evolved over time, we don't... Um, it's a lot of work. We actually, our golden rule is we'll start talking to someone minimum 12 months before any action if we're responsible to put it together. So 
we've got to go through a process. We, we, we talk about all those, you know, goals and ideals and whys and, and then we separate, you know, partners and talk to them separately, are they, what they understand. And, yeah, we work it through. It's got to be viable financially. It's got to fit. You know, it's got to hit the scales. We do all the modelling. And it's a hell of a lot of work. And, and of course, as we said before, it's not suited for everyone. So we, we, we tend to follow, you know, easy, low. We, we don't put our shingle out and say, hey, let's do this for you because it's, it is hard work. But over the years, we've done quite a few and they've all varied in different ways as to why and the different needs, like I said. Probably a couple of the examples, the dryland farming operations, um, you know, there's been five or six of them in the last 10 years where, they're majority cropping, there's some livestock involved, but majority are cropping. So it ends up being a machinery efficiency. And of course, in different areas, suddenly the, the, the machinery structure is different and the land holdings are different and everything else. But the principles are always the same, that the business is driven to be able to make the money. And there's a lot of tax elements that you can fit around this too. So a lot of the discussions we have, whilst you know, I sit there and say, here's how it should be, company unit trust, blah, blah, blah. There's a lot of individual advice. A lot of these guys are already farming themselves, so they've got to work out how that fits in and whether they change things, and we get a lot of that legal advice and accounting advice. So as we've moved along, probably the, the key different model from the dryland farmers are the irrigators. So the, the second model I actually put together was uh, we call Sherwood, Sherwood Estates and lots of north, which is a straight bit of cultural operation. That was followed shortly after by the Liebig family vineyards at Wakery, a, a similar model, all vines. So the two aspects that are different from a dryland operation are, firstly, it's not just dirt. There's actually infrastructure, as in vines, trellising and vines. There's still the sheds and everything else. And then there's a water component as well. And water component, when we were putting these together, was actually assets owned by the farmers. It wasn't actually an input cost. And that's changed over time. So there's a bit more intricacy there, but the principles are still the same. And probably the the Sherwood story, um, you know, interesting because as I touched on before, one of the brothers in that passed away unexpectedly, you know, about four years ago. And and we've always said in collaborative farming, we need to cater for people to enter, people to exit, death, um, everything to go wrong and just break it all up. <laughs> um, you know, every possible um, scenario, and I don't think we haven't covered one. So we've been tested in every way along the way. So... When I talk about this Sherwood scenario, which is obviously quite sad at the time, the, the simplicity is his wage was replaced by another staff member, which actually was the son-in-law of another brother. So that created a job opportunity for him and Sherwood didn't miss a beat. His widow was still a property owner, was still collecting rents and was able to, because he had formal employment wages, she was able to, you know, if she wanted to have any life cover set up, any you know, insurances against that, et cetera, that was able to be managed. Um, so at the end of the day, if you look at, if he were farming by himself with his wife and, and he suddenly uh, was deceased, then what would happen to that operation? What if it needed a spray the next day? You know, neighbours pitch in for a while, but then what? Now, literally forced, would have forced the widow to sell. So as it is, she was able to continue on, have the properties leased. She's collecting rent payments, servicing any debt, and her life hasn't changed. And it's obviously changed, but you know what I mean. Um, we've had We've put together a structure that lasted four years and we've undone it. Um, we've had... Uh, four partners in a structure and one wanted to exit and do his own thing. We've managed through that. You know, at the end of the day, when you when you get those, that governance right at the start and you allow for all the entries and exits and you spend that year putting it all together and understanding it, you tend to cover all of this. So, so that's been a lot of the experience. Touching under the final bit that you mentioned, Jeremy, is uh, River Wine is actually uh, a company, the way I call it, it's a 
collaboration of collaborations if uh, you want to get real big. The Liebig family, it's a, it's a wine grape selling uh, model. It's actually a grower model at the end of the day. It's a grower model. It's not a co-op um, where there's a requirement to look after the masses. It's, it's you know, a select few that have got together. It's not a corporate. It's arguably a not-for-profit. It's all about extracting the best value, not necessary price, of people's grapes in there. So we've got the two key called shareholders, Leibitz and Sherwoods, with significant tonnes. And then there's a band of about 10 other individual growers who are all members of Riverwine. And we collect, and I contract manage it. I'm not an owner again to keep some clarity in there to turn around and say, well, I'm there for one purpose, to do the best for the collaboration and the growers. And that's not always price. It can be relationships. And so we're getting tested this year. You know, we were selling Shiraz for significant prices two years ago. We, we suddenly overproduced massively last year and uh, China tariffs have cut out and there's a lot of talk about Shiraz are going to be dropped onto the ground. So the value of our relationships we've established over the years and how we play and negotiate as business, you know, uh, on behalf of growers is now going to need to stand up to make sure that we get a return and a reasonable return for a product that's not necessarily needed. Um, a lot of other values in there with the growers. It's a it's a group, united group. We're, we're a size of about 20,000 tonne, which is quite significant. It's, um, yeah, bigger than a lot of regions elsewhere in Australia, uh, just in its little group itself. Um, so, yeah, it's it's an evolution, I suppose, of the, of the collaborative thinking where, you know, win-win, we call it. You know, you've, it's not a win-lose. You don't win over someone. You've got to hit a fair middle ground. You've got to be reasonable in your dealings. You've got to, you know, transparent in your dealings and be quite open. And obviously there's people that don't want to deal with us for that reason, and there's people that we don't want to deal with that reason. That's okay. We're, we're doing a different model. We've got to change the way we look at it. So I hope that gives you a bit of an explanation, Jeremy. Yeah, it's brilliant to hear um, this same thinking, and it is an expanded thinking, applied not just in broad, a broad acre sense, but in an intensive agriculture example as well, and also in, in something that does allow for you know, collaborative selling and collaborative marketing it's just yeah fantastic that um that you've given us insights across many functions looping all the way back and probably calling on your financing background if we look at those and for the professional and formal frameworks that are around them and the stronger governance that underpins them how much more bankable are they and how much easier is it for them to access more finance and grow more constructively? Oh, it's without overplaying it, if you don't, if, if someone doesn't do anything in that area, doesn't look to um, uh, formalise or more, more so rather than be threatening with these words, more so just step up in the business acumen area, bring in some professional help, whatever, they actually won't be able to comply. The, the banks won't be able to get the information in a format or anything that they want or need in order to be able to lend to them in the first place. We we get calls semi-regularly, Jeremy, um, you know, just like one example, no names, of course, um, and I called him an old mate, he rang me up and he said, how much do you charge for a business plan? And I said, what are you talking about? You know, what, what do you mean? He says, oh, my bank won't continue to support me unless I give them a business plan. How much do you charge? And I said, well, which, why are you asking about the cost of it? You know, if your bank won't support you, isn't that important enough that you need to have one? Oh, I'll just, just whip up a few pages so I can give it to the bank and keep going. And, of course, I said to him, I'm not interested in doing that. You know, you need to own the business plan and you need to, I'll work with you, but you need to own it, you need to want it, and it shouldn't be about the cost, it should be about you manage business. It's not a waste of time. I'm, 
I'm, I'm telling them to get stuff. Find me another bank. I said, mate, not interested. So I'm not having a crack at him, but if that's his, he's exited already. Um, he just doesn't know it yet and his time's coming because he's just putting up the barrier and saying, I'm not interested, I'm not doing it, I'm not going there. And he's had the directive and, you know, I'm, I'm very respectful of banks. It's their money. It's if, if you had the money, Jeremy, and I said, can I have it? You have the right to tell me what you want, especially when you've got big brother APRA government leaning over your shoulder, auditing you and ready to find you $30 million if you get it wrong, then you're going to get it right. And if I don't comply, then I don't get the money. And I just don't understand an aspect that just thumb your nose at that. So I don't, I, I'm, 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 I'm all about saying there's a lot of facilitators, consultants all around the country out there able to help. There's a lot of people that understand finance quite well to tie in with what the banks need together with what a farmer needs. And it actually gets down to the simplicity of whether the farmer accepts what's needed to go forward and, you know, and use, keep on finance, but it's all these other areas. And what they need to do, not just show, not just put up a bit of paper, they actually need to do. I just, while I'm hot on this, sorry, Jeremy, I just want to, again, I'm, I get provoking and I'm glad no one can throw things at me. I've had a chair thrown at me once talking like this. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, and a lot of people don't like, they don't like what I say. And, and that's what I say to people. You don't have to like what I say. I don't know who's listening to this. So I'm not actually picking on anyone. I'm not being personal. And if you don't like what I say, then stop and think about what you don't like about it. And if it suits your needs to say, I don't know what I'm talking about, then you're in denial. Um, now, you don't have to believe me. The point is, all, all anyone can do is tell you what it's like, and then you can find out for yourself going forward. But I just want to go back to very lovely, bankable people, friends of mine, uh, did their budget like they did every year, and they did their budget post-harvest, so about January, and they give the bank their budget, and they got a $500,000 overdraft, and they said they were going to go to four hundred and fifty. so the bank were happy. They were going to use most of it. They needed it. It wasn't spare. Yet, at the same time, they were going back to credit and they were able to clear it and they weren't going to exceed it. And, of course, we're in an era now that not everyone even has a bank manager, let alone, you know, someone available. So we got through February and March and to their credit, this farming family were monitoring actuals to budget. So I take my hat off. They're only about 15% in that I see, and that's after we coach them to do that. But these people are already doing it. So you can imagine, I'm putting them in the top 10% by doing this. So I sat down with them in March. And they'd had a couple of unexpected capital expenses that they went against my advice for equipment finance and just wrote out 30 grand here and 50 grand there for a couple of items that they just had to do clearing sale or whatever and moved on. And then they, a bit of a delay in some income or whatever. And of course, I looked out to spreadsheets. So I looked out to the end of October before they start collecting some lamb money and some uh, wheat and everything else. And they're already 600 grand. I've, I've drawn with a 500 limit. And I said, you run out of money already. Oh, yeah, yeah, we'll worry about that later. I said, what do you mean you worry about it later? What, what are you going to do when you get closer? Oh, well, what tends to happen is it only looks like it runs out in October. We always run out in June because then we try and spend a lot to manage tax and we run out then. So we just ring up the bank manager and get a temporary limit. I said, who are you going to ring? I don't know, 1300 number. And I said, do you know what the bank is going to say? They're going to actually turn around and say, you're in default. You submitted a budget. You told us that this was going to be your operation. Then you just gone and spent money outside it. And not only do we not have the resources to go into a temp limit just because you're unorganised, we're going to sit back and judge. You knew that back in February and March. And if you didn't do anything about it until two days before you ran out of money and then you want our help, that's not what we do anymore. We're not allowed to do it. It's irresponsible for us to say, yeah, you just do what you like and we'll just throw money at you. You know, so they, I, I was able to warn them before it happened and then I watched 
five or six other people have that happen. Now, it's not everywhere. It sounds like a scare tactic, don't get me wrong, and there are some good managers, bank managers out there supporting their people and still able to do that. But I guarantee you that in the next five years it will be a thing of the past and if they're not managing their budget, if they're spending CapEx outside of budget and it's thrown, and they're going to run out of money, they need to manage that. They need to do something about it. There's a responsibility there. And even these top 10% people didn't understand that. So I'm just probably highlighting that for people who haven't seen this or had this problem, then this might all be new and it might be, yeah, yeah, whatever. And that's okay, you know, but it is coming. And, and you know, that's why this need to want to step up in management and business controls around it. So final comment on that, the answer for a lot of people, again, it's, it's you know, we've got a business that pays $2,000 a year for a professional bookkeeper who does all the admin, all the myob, whatever, zero, does it all, produces reports every month for them to look at, even if they don't have meetings to them, actuals on the budget every month, $2,000 a year. The, the wife who used to do it, she's absolutely ecstatic, she used to do a head in, and they just get the information on a, on a plate and they know exactly where they are at any time and they're back to being able to make decisions on that rather than actually have to do it and not even understand what they're doing. So sorry for the preach there, but I get pretty passionate about that. <laughs> uh, thank you, Jeff. And your, your passion comes through. What I did expect in this conversation was to explore that lateral construct of collaborative farming, and I expected that good governance frameworks underpinning that um, are critical to its success. And I did expect that we would talk about the importance of those applied to farming families in driving profitability, efficiency um, and professionalism. But I think you've hit on a really good point and thank you for raising it, that unless you're going after that good business governance and that level of professionalism, and that level of, of good formal business training and good business acumen and good conduct, perhaps you're already on your way out. Um, thank you for naming that. And I think you're right. A lot of people might not enjoy hearing that, but there has been, let's call it, a change in our farm business ownership landscape. Um, the banks require it, but now so many other parties that are in and around our businesses require it. It's no different to the red tape that plumbing companies are now exposed to or electrical contracting companies in town. Are. Whether you're a small plumber or a large um, employer of plumbers, those same formalities apply. So, so many other industries are being exposed to the requirement to be way more professional than we've been allowed to be. And I think you're quite right, Jeff, to call it that it is the same now in agriculture and we all need to step up in how good we are at it. And can I add in one line there, Jeremy, because this seems to be the one killer in the step is if this discussion has some people out there that after they throw the proverbial chair at me because they don't like what I'm saying or you're saying. But at the end of the day, you know, and, and I take my hat off to Farm Owners Academy, there's an awareness there that's greater than the average farmer. And so your audience is already at another level of thinking. But the one key element is what do I do? Every person, because the way we talk about it, you and I now, it's it's we're putting it back on them that they've got to own it, which by nature, especially for farmers, they've got to do it. And that's the difference that I'm preaching all the time is they don't have to do it. We have not just in collaboratives, but also in family farms, we have contract CEOs, might be 10 hours a week, and they actually come in to, to take responsibility for this to happen because 
they, they look at it differently. They're, they're generally, without being age judged, they're normally 60 to 65 years old. They've got a whole lifetime in business. You know, this is a breeze, these contract jobs. They're managing some emotions of some staff, you know, a bit of a staff meeting on Monday morning for a couple of hours and then setting in place some of the risks and whatever. So everyone else can go and do what they know how to do, grow a crop and, and take the crop off, you know. So it's the ability to bring them in. Now, for smaller operations, I'll have a bookkeeper, someone help them with the HR, you know, when they're hiring someone. You know, it's, it's the ability to understand that it's needed but it doesn't have to be done by the person because when you don't know what you're talking about or what you're doing, God, you don't get more overwhelmed than this, you know, than, than, than us shooting our mouth off. So that's just the thing I wanted to say loud and clear. There is no doubt in that that you can bring in the the wise grey-haired consultant to come in and help you get this done or you can find someone who you can bring in as a contract CEO and there is absolutely nothing wrong with that. I guess I advocate for the importance of each of us to learn how to run a successful business. And that transition from being a good technical farmer to being the CEO of a, a growing farm company is a mindset shift and a skills shift that I'm passionate about seeing farm owners make. And so um, I certainly acknowledge what you say, and that certainly is a good option, but I also want to encourage people that in business, we get the results we deserve. And yes. to, to learn how to move from technical operator to CEO of a, a growth company, it's a wonderful journey to take. It takes time to get those skills, but we can all get those skills. It starts with a commitment to playing at a different level. And Jeff, I think you've touched on that wonderfully today, that, that to move from family farm to being a participant in a, a scaled collaborative farm requires a significant step up in skill. And, um, you know, that's exactly why we exist. But I love that you're on board helping um, families consider. And even those few families, you know, those 5% of the 5% um, make that transition and make it well. And you're right, Jeremy, the, the, the going back to Bulabara with John and Robin in particular and Sherwood and the guys in there, to watch them move from what I call a standard farmer operation. They, they're, they're making decisions on the run and doing what they need to do and reacting to the weather or reacting to whatever, to after 10 years, they're actually sitting there making strategic decisions looking forward for the business as a whole and being responsible for those decisions rather than just react. So when you, as I say, when you've got a basic plan of where you're headed and how you're going about it, you can vary that. That's the easy bit. You can adjust around it if needed. But if you have no plan, you actually just get what you get and and you end up reacting the whole way through so that that the collaborative structures have forced that onto the who were just mum and dad farmers to force them into directors to represent you know to, to look and represent Bolivaro in that case it's a that's the shift that's where it changes and the responsibilities step up and the ability to actually learn and grow from there steps from there and that's it, it speeds it up for sure Jeremy so Jeff final question if I could for those that are interested in learning more, um, be it around Riverland Lending Services and from a financing standpoint, but in, to, in particular around this topic of collaborative farming and perhaps enrolling your team's support in exploring opportunities in and around that more fully, how do, how do people best get in contact with you? Yeah, look, um, email, mobile, um, happy to chat away to anyone, um, try and facilitate, you know, 
something if anyone wants it. Um, as as you know, Jeremy, I'm not sort of here to chase business per se, but happy to help. You know, at the end of the day, it's just about help because it is just you know a bit of guidance, facilitation. Easiest way to find me is probably look up RLS Riverland Landing Services online, and and that's got all my email, phone number on uh, as a website or social media. Um, that's probably the easiest way to find me. Right. Jeff, thanks so much for your time. For those interested in uh, connecting with Jeff, I'll share his email and phone number um, in the introduction to this podcast. I hope this has been of interest to many of you. Um, I'm not going to apologise that it may have been quite challenging. I think that's actually really healthy and really constructive. And Jeff, thanks for, um, for speaking up on a really important issue and for your insights today. Very much appreciated. Yeah, thanks, Jeremy. Take care, everyone, and all the best for the rest of this season. Bye for now.